I really am upset with both the, the, the R's and the D's, the, the blue and the red teams. It's, they have gotten to be, for whatever reason, they're now in corners. And there's nothing that can bring them together. Everything is, is filtered through the, the, the red lens or the, or the blue lens. And I'm not sure. I would like them to remember that um, science is a process. It is a way of looking at things. Greetings and welcome to the Fisk Community Show. We are a group of internet randos brought together by a shared appreciation for lively discussion, considerate disagreements, and irreverent humor. Follow us on Twitter at Fifth Community. Find fellow seditionists by using the hashtag Fifthdom and follow the Fifthdom Club on Clubhouse. And as always, in the words of Camille Foster, be brave, call bullshit. coming once again on the fifth community pod um the uh, the first episode that i did was with you and leslie we were talking about kids and parenting and how things might have changed um and this episode is about something completely different um namely wildfires forest management climate change etc cetera, etc cetera. so um do you mind introducing yourself so people know why I, I wanted I to give, speak to you about you this? Know, as, as MC says, I'll give a pricey of, of myself. Please. Yeah. I worked for the for Cal Fire for 25 years. And prior to that, uh, I worked five years, uh, two years for LA County Fire Department. Also, but not as a fireman in their, far, in their forestry division. I've uh, been a registered professional forester most of that time. Um, this being the state of California, everything is licensed. Mm -hmm. Everything has a registration. And um, that's so I was a licensed forester. I also taught at our um, California Fire Academy for in Ione for, for Cal Fire. I was on the cadre for teaching um, um, advanced fire behavior and how modeling works. And that was my little section on just kind of how the modeling did and didn't work and what it could and couldn't do. And um, finished up my career with Cal Fire uh, in Lake County in California at Boggs Mountain State Forest. Um, so I'm kind of familiar with, you know, some of the things um, and I have my, my biases. So I'll just lay them out there that I do like forest management. I tend to like to try things rather than not try things. Uh, I think the, um, what do they call it? The precautionary principle, pardon me for going to phasic, but I find that to be, really dumb that basically says it's kind of like qualified immunity 
you're allowed mm-hmm. to to assume that it's okay not to do this because it's not been done before. It's okay, so that's a little bit uh, about me for the past oh nearly fifteen uh, last five years. Uh, I have been a, uh, a water company uh, employee. We're uh, have a small water company, uh, twenty hookups, and by the brilliance of our of our system, and that is the federal system. Anything which is has more than six connections is a public water system, okay. and we fall under at least under EPA rules. And in California, they're the primary the EPA is not the primary agency. The um, California EPA is. And so they are the primary agency and California sets the, the regulations under which we, we work. I'm not real thrilled with my state government. Mm. So we are going to talk a little bit about um, Larry Elder and the insanity and going around the the race. Yes. Ask me what's going on with you, Ileana. Um, Yeah. So, so I, you're in California. I'm in Seattle. Um, I've been living here for um, over 15 years. And certainly in the last, I mean, I, I, I don't know, five to seven years, I've noticed, you know, around this time of year, so August, September, uh, where I am, um, there, there are always fires. Sometimes we get smoke, um, like up here where I live and I'm, you know, close to the water. Um, but you know, we get smoke sometimes, you know, air quality is really bad for a number of days at a time. Um, and every time a fire event happens around me, the, uh, the way it is portrayed in the media is, oh, this is another casualty of climate change. Um, we need to address it because it's only going to get worse. Um, I know that recently, and I know I, I shared this with you, um, I haven't been following the Newsom recall race very closely, but when I was looking into fires, one of the, the, uh, the things that came up was um, one of Larry Elder's um, you know, statements that brought him under fire was, you know, that the severity of the fires in the Western U.S. in recent memory is due to poor management rather than climate change. And he was universally roundly pilloried for this. Um, That always makes me suspicious because... It seems like a very simple, convenient answer, and answers are not usually simple or convenient in the real world. So um, I wanted to ask you, what is your take on forest management, fires, climate change? What do we know? What do we not know? How do we make decisions? Well, what, what all of us know is probably more than I know. So I will start with that. I am going to say that I know a little bit, I have formed opinions. Some of them are informed and some of them are just opinions. Um, First of all, what it takes for a fire are three things. It takes fuel, it takes weather, and it takes a heat source. That's kind of the the fire triangle or or the, the, the fire behavior triangle. 
fuel, weather, heat. And if you can, you can kind of, or like, like I said, it has been a while now. So it may have been topography that, that make up the fire behavior triangle, but it takes um, a heat source. It takes fuel and it takes air. All of those things contribute to the fire. And so to concentrate only on the weather mm. is, to, is to concentrate on something that you aren't going to have a whole lot of, of control over. Is one of the things fires never happen at opportune times. Accidents never happen at opportune times. Right, right. It's like a yeah. Murphy's law of it's kind of like fire. <laughs> yeah. There's kind of a reason why we don't, at least up in um, your your neck of the woods, my neck of the woods, Southern California is different with chaparral. And chaparral can burn um, almost all year round. If it gets dry for a few days, it'll be ready to burn again. So it has mm -hmm. a lot, has lots of creosote, lots of lots of volatiles, waxy coatings on the on the leaves. So it's ready to burn in no time. But up here, we tend if it's wet and and rainy, you probably aren't going to get get um, fire. But you so you can't really control the weather. But they're saying, so if we change the, the climate, we will change the weather. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe. The thing that we can change, and this is kind of where Elder is pretty much more right than he is wrong, mm -hmm. is that we can change the fuel and the spacing. And the, uh, there are so many things that go into um, fire behavior as far as fuel. You, you can increase spacing between one, one tree to another. Mm -hmm. um, you can, uh, one of the, the worries with, with a forest fire, a think of a grass fire as being a, like a forest, um, if you will, a very tall, tall grass. Right. It starts to take off when it gets into the top. And that is known as a crown fire for, for, a forest uh, or trees. And so you want to cut down on the number of ladder fuels, things that will allow it to get up into the crown, up into the high portion of the, uh, the canopy. And then the wind will, will carry that along. Gotcha. You can't change the topography all that much. You can't change the weather, but you can change the fuels. So elder is more right than wrong there. Almost everyone that I have read, and then I tend to read, if, if I'm going, my go-tos are Bjorn Lomborg and Matt Ridley. Mm -hmm. Also, I like John Christie, who is the, he is, um, was it George's meteorologist, state meteorologist, runs the satellite program at University of Alabama, Huntsville. Yeah, pardon me. So he's in Alabama. Okay. Uh, so I go to John Christie. Um, oh, a side note, I think I can put in your show notes or whatever. There is a really good debate between Christie and Carrie Emanuel okay. done by, by uh, Russ Roberts. It's back awesome. from 2009, but I think it still holds up. 
the idea that they both talk about what what's going on. So I'm sorry, I'm I'm off the off went off track there a little bit, but no, no, this is great. We, we can uh, basically you can you have to adapt, and uh, one of the things Christy says: don't worry about the six inches of sea level line, uh, rise over the next hundred years. Worry about the next storm surge at 19 feet over the you know. The, right. the next two days or whatever it is for, for a hurricane. That's where you need to put, if you're going to, uh, even, even climate scientists are basically saying most of this rise is baked in. Right. We are going, if we change everything right now, go to zero emissions worldwide, zero net emissions. I think the change is from eight degrees Fahrenheit from 8.3 degrees Fahrenheit to eight degrees Fahrenheit. Don't, it's, it's something fairly, fairly minuscule. Mm -hmm. If you say, well, you're going to lower it, lower it 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, then people may say, well, well, that's great. Isn't it? Not if it's only from 8.3 to eight. I mean, it's pretty well cooked in folks like India and China, even using the, the models are going to continue. Most of, um, I'm sorry. I'm I'm rattling. No, I'm, no, no, no. I'm, this is uh, this is great. I'm so rattling. My my question about this, what I'm hearing you say, is that, um, you know, people are rightly or wrongly or in the middle concerned about the increase in temperatures. That isn't something that we have a whole lot of power to change. There are other things that it is within our purview to change. And yet people are only talking about climate change, reducing you know, fossil fuel emissions. Why is the focus there instead of on the practical things that we can change? I wish I had that answer. <laughs> I have my suspicions. Please. Uh, my suspicions revolve around religion, and mm. tribalism. Those are my suspicions. I have no good data on this. This is just kind of uh, my background. I was raised evangelical. Christ is coming. All the, all the, and I, please, I don't mean to make fun. I'm not trying to make fun of anyone who has a, a, a foundation in a faith. I'm just saying that it doesn't work for me. And I'm, uh, I found that everything pointed always to something. There were, uh, and things that didn't point to it tended to be um, ignored. Mm. And that is the thing about science is you can't ignore it. If something doesn't fit, you have to say, hmm, that's interesting. At the very least, you have to wonder why that doesn't fit your model. Right. So, but anyway, my, my thought is it has become a religion. It is a, a test. Do you truly believe? And I think it has to do much with my generation um, and the ecology movement of the 1970s. The first Earth Day happened um, when I was in college. 
And we thought we'd really understood what was going on. And a number of, of, of predictions were made. And I have since noticed, and it's kind of what pulled me away from those things, along with Patrick Moore, who I will mention as being someone I really, really like. Patrick Moore being one of the uh, founders of Greenpeace, lives up north of you. Okay. On, on Vancouver Island. That's right. Uh, also, uh, also uh, trained in forestry. Um, I think I may have gotten myself off track again. Where was I? Uh, I environmentalism I, I, is the religion. Yeah. And a number of things. Uh, yeah. And you also had uh, folks like E.F. Schumacher with the small is beautiful movement. Mm. And there were lots of little, okay, we can, we can begin to recycle. We can, um, we can, uh, you can begin using compost and the, the organic movement. And the thing that we, we as, you know, kind of the first thinkers in this or, you know, dabblers or whatever, was we didn't scale. Mm. We didn't know how to, uh, organic was great. If you're growing uh, tomatoes in your backyard, yes, Composting is a wonderful thing to do. Better to use it for that than throwing it out into the garbage in the landfill. Perfect. It is not the way to go for when we um, we scale it up and support. At that time, there were about 3 billion of us. Now there are 7 billion of us. Mm-hmm. It really didn't scale that well. But there are people who held on to that, that position. And the, it was definitely the romantic idea rather than a, the enlightenment ideals that I, I think much of uh, the, the green peace folks that Patrick was trying to get uh, to move over towards science, uh, the uh, number of folks in my generation stayed with the hippy dippy stuff. Mm. And it's great at small scale, but if, we really want to make a difference. It doesn't scale up for us uh, to grow a lot of food on a little bit of land and leave the rest for um, animals and, and wildlife. Right. If we want to use, if we want to use up about eighty percent of our land for food, organic works really well. Right. It, until it doesn't, it just you can't produce that much fertilizer. Naturally, just can't. Paper Bosch is the is the way to go. We need to lose about six billion of us if we want to go organic, and then still use about eighty percent of our land. Wow! So, so that it. Anyway, I think it is a religious element where nature is good and people are bad. But mm-hmm. that, like I said, that is my opinion. There is a little bit. To back this up, a fellow by the name of Brom Taylor, B-R-O-M, T-A-Y-L-O-R, wrote uh, the Encyclopedia of of the the Ecology Movement or the Ecology Religious Movement, something along those lines. 
Okay. It's really interesting. And he, he gets into the earth first, but much, much of the, um, like the smallest, smallest beautiful movement. Um, uh, Schumacher wanted to kind of have a, a Buddhist idea of small little self-contained villages Mm-hmm. with very little trade amongst one another and all would be nice and peaceful. It sounds awful, but that was, that was his ideal. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, as I'm hearing you speak, what, what's striking to me, and, and this is where I think the analogy to religion is fairly apt. Um, again, I, I am a secular person. Um, I do not reject religion out of hand. Um, you know, it, it's obviously it's been with us for as as long as there have been people. It's clearly important, significant. It serves a purpose. However, there are and have always been associated harms. Um, Mm-hmm. What what are so if environmentalism appears like a religion in certain aspects, what what are some of the harm, some of the actual harms that you see, um, mm. you know, being perpetrated? So, you know, I'm thinking. Um, you were talking about you know nature nature good right. For example, like when it comes to fire, for example, that implies that, um, you know, we we do not want to cut down trees, even though that would make fires more containable and harder to spread. But because, you know, trees are holy, we don't like the idea of logging, doesn't make us feel good. We're not going to do it. Instead, we're going to work hard to put out the fire because we do not want our beautiful forest to burn down. What are the problems with that? Okay. That is a lot of territory. (laughs) uh, Our our fire suppression standard of putting out the fire by 10 a.m. the next morning dates back at least to 1910 with the big fire, the big burn, which uh, burned up much of Montana and Idaho. And then, God, 4,500 square miles if i remember right that's a lot just an an incredible amount of territory and um there were two camps basically and remember theodore roosevelt is uh president at this time and see if i can bring that that up on my anyway I, i wrote up on this a while back and there were two camps one was run by Gifford Pinchot. Then uh, the uh, first, I believe Pinchot was the head of the, the first head. He, I know he was the first head. I think he was head of the Forest Service at this time. Okay. Uh, and then there was another one, and because I can't find it right offhand, of course, I believe his name was Richard Ballinger, but he was the Department of the Interior. Okay. And Ballinger uh, and I, I will continue to go with Ballinger and somebody will write in and say, no, you idiot. It was <laughs> this person. But uh, he was uh, going for what he called the Indian way. 
Mm. And the, this has been fairly typical and, and I will forgive, please forgive me all my native American friends out there. Uh, Cause I'm going to butcher this badly. But my understanding is that toward the end of the season, most um, tribes before they were moving out of the, uh, the high country into the lower country would set a number of fires. This would clear out understory and create new grass and, and new shrubs and forbs for wildlife to consume next spring. This, so this had a, a method of, of clearing, like I said, clearing out the understory. And when they first kind of Europeans came through on, you know, on their wagon trains and whatnot, many of them marveled at how open our forests were here in the West. Mm. I've been in forests in the East and I can understand why they would marvel. They're just dense jungles mm -hmm. back there, different, different climate, different everything. So it has a different, different way of growing, but they did marvel at how few obstacles they had. Everything was fairly well open. Uh, so Bal I think it was Ballinger wanted to, to begin getting more fire back into the system. Okay. And um, Pinchot said, no, no, Ted. And these were two, Roosevelt and Ballinger uh, and Pinchot were good friends. Okay. When Roosevelt was governor of New York, Pinchot would come visit and they would roll up the rugs and rustle. That was an idea, huh. their idea of fun. So, right? so Pinchot had an in to begin with, with Roosevelt. And he won out. And so this, this whole idea of getting the fires put out worked for a while because mm -hmm. fires had been around for a bit and they'd actually done some, some clear out. So they were able to get some things done uh, and put them out. By about 1936, there, uh, the Forest Service is admitting that it really didn't work. Interesting. A uh, number of the, uh, their fire people, a number of their forest managed people, people were saying it doesn't work. But the, I, for whatever reason, they um, did not really work at getting fire back into the system at this time for whatever reason i don't okay. know i think we're still in the middle of of um fdr's administration at this time and they're still doing depression era stuff right and why they weren't trying to do some prescribed fire with with the ccc i don't know okay it beyond me they're still but uh, people like Norman McLean are writing Young Men in Fire. Was, again, when did McLean write that? I'm um, trying to remember the fire in which 16 hotshots were killed. Mm. And McLean was one of, was one of the people that um, reviewed the, the fire. I can't remember that. It was on the Bitterroot. Oh, so it doesn't catch on 
So what we have now is buildup of of of, fi- of unmanaged fuels, mm-hmm. partly due to the idea that natural is good, mm-hmm. that hands off is good, that um, green is good, mm-hmm. and um, Clinton effectively put in uh, William Jefferson effectively put in a uh, a freeze on logging on all national forests. Okay. And so we've, we have had an uphill battle. We foresters have had an uphill battle with, with saying, you're going to have to do something. Fire mm-hmm. uh, forests need disturbance. Every, uh, every tree has kind of its niche in the system. Um, whether it's going to be giant sequoia or ponderosa, Douglas fir, each one expects certain variables to come in. Lodgepole pine is really big after after fire. And one of the reasons is it has um, serotonous cones, which open up during fire mm-hmm. and drop the seeds. So each one has its own little, little niche in the ecosystem. And a number of them, such as Ponderosa, kind of want fire around once in a while. To so they can drop their their seed on more open open territory, more easily accessible than something that has grass and forbs and brush and other competitors on it. So we have we in the the forestry community have often called for more logging, not because it's as good as as fire, but because it is at least a a way of disturbing the soil, mm-hmm. making uh, burying some ground, making it accessible for planting, doing the planting ourselves sometimes, but at least breaking it up. Now, this is what Elder is saying is we need more logging. Well, and uh, then the call is, no, no, we need to take out the small trees. Well, to get anyone to want to do this, you have to make it economically viable. You're okay. either going to have to completely subsidize it with taxpayers' money, or you're going to, and that's not going to happen on private land. Right. So we're talking um, some sort of state forest, county forest, national forest, but it's going to have to be, if you're going to do it with taxpayers' money, completely subsidize it, or you're going to have to sweeten the pot a little bit and add some of the larger trees in, which are commercially valuable, to make it possible. Those are kind of the ways we can do it. And then you may have um, have the ability to start reintroducing fire. And this right. is, uh, we haven't even brought up the, uh, you know, the, the 500-pound grill in the, in, the, in the room. And that is folks like me who live in the middle of wildland. Right, and uh, we have we have done what we can to harden, but our 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 area. But um, we who live in California live in a fire prone area anyway. Right. So when you say, "Well, we're going to have a prescribed fire next Tuesday," the the stars have aligned and everything is perfect. Well, what if my house burns up? I'm going to sue. I have to. 
Right. It's kind of the way our system is set up. This is a chilling effect on prescription burning. Right. It is. How we want to indemnify those that, that do the prescribed fire, how we want to set things up for that is going to make a huge difference to how it's done. Prescribed fire is not a panacea. Mm-hmm. It has problems. People have, have um, uh, put housing in the middle of what used to be complete uh, wildland. Mm-hmm. It is now you know, inter, interspersed. What will look uh, from the air as being an area completely free of, of houses at night will look like a small town. I mean, you, you see the, the lights all ripple through. Right. You go, oh, I didn't know there were houses there. They, they don't show during the day. They show up at night, right. interestingly enough. So uh, it is a complex problem. It is not simple. And anyone who thinks it is simple has not looked at it carefully and has only used uh, the people that they count on as heuristics and the, the tribal leaders. I'm sorry, but that's kind of how it is. And when I when I began looking at what my tribal leaders were saying and what they had predicted back in the 70s, 80s, mm-hmm. 90s, it wasn't adding up. And it wasn't what they had said would happen, wouldn't, didn't happen. And you kind of have to say, maybe their, their answers are wrong. Right. Um, but that is what science is. Science says you make a prediction, you go out and make observations, do the observations match what you predicted? Mm-hmm. If not, then why not? Right. And when the why and, and when they start just making excuses for the why nots, oh, it's going to happen, but it's you know, the the second coming is going to happen, but it's we we calculated the this wrong. <laughs> it becomes religion. It is Thanks. it is no you have to look at it a little more granular than than that. So that was kind of where I read two books that kind of took me off the off the path of listening to the progressive leaders that I had been listening to, uh-huh. and those books were The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley, and the first one was The Skeptical Environmentalist by Bjorn because I really related to Bjorn. Mm-hmm. He was like me. Um, here's what uh, the World Research Institute says. Here's what. Lester Brown says, here's what so-and-so says. That didn't work. That didn't happen. This didn't happen. This didn't happen. Why not? Right. And Bjorn went into it and said, wow, they were wrong. And here's, here's why um, Ron, Ronald, uh, who's the uh, economist who said the state of humanity is getting better. And I have his book over on my shelf. But um, he died a, a number of years back. The one who made the, the bet with um, Paul Ehrlich. Oh, is that uh, Hans Rosling? No. no, 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 not Hans. I loved Hans, but Han, I think Hans was wrong on, on climate change and, and was right. blinded a bit by not knowing and then listening, not to the IPCC, but to the... Um, the writers of policy of the, the the summary for policymakers of the IPCC, mm. and I, I think Hans got got duped by them because they tend to be more 
I don't sure they even read the the report when they do their their summary for policymakers. Mm-hmm. Um, no, um, can't remember. But he made made the the bet, mm-hmm. and uh, on five different fuels, not, not fuels, but um, uh, metals, and said, "I I predict that the." Yes, they may get get uh, more scarce, but that is going to create opportunity, and therefore the price is actually going to drop because they're going to find people will find more ways to to um, to mine that stuff and Ehrlich pick zinc, copper, something, something, and all of them went down. The whole basket, not just not just did the basket go down, but each one went down. He uh, called it a basket of of metals. Gotcha. And um, so, uh, anyway, I read Bjorn Bjorn's skeptical environmentalist, which still holds up after twenty years, and um, Ridley's book, The Rational Optimist, which still holds up after eleven. Both are really great books. Yeah. Um. So. What's really interesting to me about the way um, that you described um, the green is good, hands off is good, um, anti-logging, anti-prescribed fire, um, suppress fire by 10 a.m. the next morning policy. Um, It seems like... To me, this seems like a, a very clear illustration of uh, knocking down uh, Chesterton's fence without bothering at all to um, t- to look into why the fence was there in the first place. So, you know, Indians, Native Americans had been using prescribed fire for many, many, many years. Right. Um, Europeans... Uh, with their, you know, scientific hubris. Sorry, I'm just adding my own, uh, you know, <laughs> my own uh, opinions right. and biases. We, this is this is what we do. We we use patterns and things we understand to exactly. put together and, uh, and until it doesn't add, uh, does or doesn't add up. Right. Um, and so they said, no, we're so you know, Europeans said we're going to put out these fires. Um, it was striking to me that you said it was like 1936 that uh, that that it was clearly well known that immediate fire suppression didn't work. It's almost a hundred years later. Why are we still doing this? Or who has the power to change policy and yet doesn't? Why don't they? Okay. And we also haven't talked about, were they effective? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, yeah, probably. If you, if one looks at um, what the fires were like, the, the, the magnitude of fires in 1900 mm-hmm. and compare it with the, the magnitude of, magnitude of fires in 2021 or 2017 or whenever the last information is that we have mm-hmm. the last year they've actually been going down steadily the idea that climate change has made these fires larger and more dangerous 
isn't holding up. Hmm. Now, there are good reasons to want to um, put in, use prescribed fire for lots of, you know, make, make the, the landscape more natural, more adaptable. Uh, there are lots of reasons to do it, lots of reasons not to do it. Um, the, the Forest Service didn't see it meeting their needs in 1936. They were putting more and more people on it. They were doing more things. Um, but if you look at what the data say, the data are showing that we're actually having fewer smaller fires or, or less acreage burned. Maybe not smaller mm -hmm. fires, but I think 4,500 square miles is pretty damn big. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the only larger fire is the Peshtigo, which killed like 1,150 people. Oh. The, um, the Big Burn killed, they think, somewhere around 70, but that's a guess. Right. It's an estimate. So I'm sure the Peshtigo is an estimate as well, but uh, a magnitude more than, than what right. that one was. But still, if you... if it is a, a factor of how we as humans work is that we tend to notice the things right in front of our nose and assume it's always been right in front of our nose. Right. And uh, it's always been this way mm -hmm. and it hasn't. And, and I know we talked, uh, the, the guys on, on the fifth col uh, column bring this up quite a bit, that history shows that things are getting better. History shows that that it is not as bad as it used to be. History shows this. And if you only had one, if I only had one um, one parameter or, or data point to pick when it comes to history being better, I'd pick dentistry. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> oh. Anyway, I have a personal anecdote on that, but I'll tell you after we're, we're off. Okay. <laughs> as far as dentistry. But things have gotten better. And climate change has become a con convenient whipping boy. Mm. How, how bad is it going to be? The questions on that are out. The consensus, I think, is tending to go around, to move around adaptation. Mm-hmm and how we're going to adapt the uh, predictions that are made as far as getting toward that ad adaptation. Um, I think border sometimes on insane, but hmm. uh, that's because the way that the climate, the, the climate scenarios and the climate, climate modeling, there isn't one, path. The IPCC, the Interna International Panel on Climate Change, um, has set up what they call scenarios. Mm -hmm. And the most batshit scenario is usually the one that gets quoted or gets, yeah, gets quoted in the press the most often because it is, because it is the most insane. Mm -hmm. It assumes that we will more or less go backward start using coal for everything mm -hmm. 
And coal is about 70 to 80% carbon. And about you know, 5% hydrogen as compared to um, uh, something like methane, mm -hmm. natural gas, which is about 20% carbon and 80% hydrogen. Much, much cleaner to burn, much more closer to a complete hydrogen economy. But 8.5 lays out a completely batshit scenario. It also has some other things in, built into it, but that's the one that gets most often classified as a business as usual scenario. Mm. And it is not business as usual. Mm. It's, it is completely batshit nuts. And uh, that this is going to happen is vastly unlikely. And this is assuming that the, that the models are right. And again, my background uh, with fire behavior was teaching the models. And we recognized that they had massive, massive uh, limitations. But the, the main thing we, we stressed was what we call GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. Right. And um, once you put garbage into this, this basically black box, um, you may get, you'll get garbage out. But even if you put the best stuff in, you had to test your, your prediction against what actually happened. If you weren't testing, if you weren't observing, if you weren't looking at what was going to happen and comparing, you weren't doing, you're not doing science. You weren't doing good fire behavior prediction. That didn't work. Why not? Right. Is, is the is the fuel different? Is the weather different? What was the wind more or less than what we were expecting? You have to look at these things, and um, I don't know that the how the IPCC is is looking at that. I don't know what their their um, their meteorologists and climate scientists are are putting into it. These are complex, complex, complex formulas and algorithms and do loops and stuff I don't understand. Right. But so far, they seem to be overestimating at least um, what uh, John Christie has put out. And I, I trust Christie. Uh, he, his, his satellites cover the entire Earth. They have the, their algorithms down fairly well as to what the what their feedback is going to be, so they can they they know it fairly well what what's coming off with their readings, and they're taking you know, the satellites are taking uh, readings all the time all around the Earth, um, but it seems like the IPCC or a number have decided to go with with land based um, weather stations. Gotcha, and um, I. Th I I have, I get conspirac conspiratorial when I get into that. So <laughs> thinking, okay, we now we now don't have to tell you what's going on. We can make up our own numbers. But mm -hmm. Christie's Christie has matched his numbers against a number of of different scenarios, different models, and the models consistently overpredict. 
And part of the overprediction is already uh, is in there because some of it is based on one part of it is supposed to be carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent, methane gas, any number of things. Two parts, water vapor. Okay. Water vapor does two things. It will allow for more heat to come in. You're supposed to see a hot spot within the, I'm going to go out over my skis here because I am not 100% sure on this. I am not a climate scientist. I am not a meteorologist. None of those things. <laughs> and I have, so I have lay my biases out here, but there should be a hot spot in the tropics and they're not seeing it. Hmm. The, the, the models say there should be a hot spot in the tropics. They're not seeing it. That may, I could be completely wrong, but um, that is based on the model being two, two parts water vapor, one part carbon dioxide. It is not 100% carbon dioxide driven right um richard Lindzen points out and he's the mit uh climate scientist who is hated by michael mann et al because he brings up clouds and mm. their, their cooling effect so i will know i know enough to know i don't know about uh, enough about this i will continue to Go with, we don't understand weather all that well yet. On the large scale, we know a little bit about, uh, I, I understand 101% about the Pacific decadal oscillation, the Atlantic <laughs> decadal os oscillation, this oscillation, that oscillation. There are La Nina, El Nino. There's so much that goes into weather and climate. I will, I don't claim ignorance. I claim I know enough to know I don't know enough. I know right. they exist, how they work, why they work. I just know that the world is inc incredibly complex. And if you've got it down to one little model to think you ex that you think explains everything, I'm thinking you're not right, but that's my bias. Right, right. So, so here's... Uh a, a French goodbye sort of question. Um, I, sure. I, I I tend to agree with you that I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> that things are complex. Um, folks whose job it is to make decisions. What what would you consider a reasonable heuristic for making decisions in such complex situations? That's, that is a question that is really interesting. I was going to start with um, my little bit of knowledge on how the policymakers make their decisions. Sure, let's start there. Generally, they make it through staff. Mm -hmm. And again, I worked for CAL FIRE. We have seven or eight, depending on how you want to count them, state forests. The largest is Jackson State Forest at 51,000 acres. Small by, it, it does, it's not even a ranger unit by, by national forest standards. But it was, a, uh, it was kind of a go-to place if you're a state legislator. And they want to talk about whatever it is, logging or, or 
silviculture or hydrology, that would be the place to go. And they will send their, their staff in and the, you know, the, the Jackson State Forest people will show them around, show them kind of how they do things and why they do them. But they say, we're, we're talking to people who have no interest in listening to us. Mm. They had their minds made up before they set foot on the forest. And they're going, to, going back to tell the, uh, whoever sent them, whoever the legislator was, all this stuff that they already preconceived. They've already got their minds made up. They have their, uh, th and that's, uh, that's kind of what I was seeing in our, in that article that you sent me from Gizmodo about mm -hmm. how Larry Elder was wrong about logging. Right. Um, that's because they've got their minds already made up. They, the, uh, the, the science is clear. And it's settled, and no amount of of other data, other other possibilities, is going to to add up to them. And they they say we believe in the science. We're going to follow the science. Mm -hmm. Well, funny that they uh, only listen to the scientists that they want to listen to. Right. And and maybe that's the union of concerned scientists or the folks at the Environmental Working Group or the um, National Resources Defense Fund, uh, Earth, Def um, what's ED, um, yeah, Earth Defense Fund or any number of the National Resources Defense um, Coalition, I forget all the different, uh, World Wildlife Fund, right. any number of them, Sierra Club, will have their experts and they, you know, whether the, the experts may have degrees, PhDs in these things, but they're incredibly biased. There's one fellow who um, wrote a book on how thinning operations make for larger uh, fires mm. and bigger fires. And, and, a, and the, the he, we say, well, you kind of cherry pick this. And he go, no, I didn't. Of course not. Why? I'm a scientist. Hey. So, some of it is baked in to the tribes and it's kind of why I really am upset with both the, the, the R's and the D's, the, the blue and the red teams is they have gotten to be for whatever reason, they're now in corners mm -hmm. and there's nothing that can bring them together. Everything is, is filtered through the, the, the red lens or the, or the blue lens. And, I'm not sure. I would like them to remember that um, science is a process. It is a way of looking at things. And I'm trying to, uh, you know, it is um, an iterative process, one that, oh, I, that's why I can't get there, um, that is always trying to disprove its priors. How did I, um, sorry, sorry. Um, that if your uh, science is a culture of doubt and politics seems to be a, uh, a culture of belief. Yeah. And this is not a good place to be. It is, I, I'd rather have 
questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And I've been, uh, I, I know that's been attributed to Feynman, but Matt says that apparently Richard didn't say that. So I'm not, I will claim it as my own then because <laughs> right now it's anonymous. <laughs> Great. But I, I love it. I, I'd rather have questions that can't be answered. And I have a lot of them. Yeah. So are you then saying that politics is inherently unscientific? Politics is the pursuit of power. <laughs> so, yes. And so when the, the pursuit of power is confused with the pursuit for truth, the pursuit for truth becomes a pursuit for power. I have another um, book that, that I, I read after uh, I read Matt and, and, and Bjorn that I really enjoyed. And that is a uh, Playing God in Yellowstone by Alston Chase. A fun, fun book on how we went into Yellowstone um, and just screwed it up royally. Mm. And a, a naturalist said, "Why aren't there any?" And I forget what the term, what what he was looking for. I think it was beaver. Uh, why aren't there any beaver? And started doing a deep dive into past uses and abuses at Yellowstone. Well, people, one of the things was that people wanted to see bison and elk mm. and moose and didn't, or I think there were moose in, in Yellowstone. I've been, been too long since I've been there. I know they have bison and elk. And so the U.S. Army um, did, them, did them a solid and started killing off the wolves so that there would be, they wouldn't be predated. Right. So, and they were in charge at the time of, of Yellowstone. Who else would you put in charge of a, of a national park when you don't have a national park service, but the U.S. Army. Right. So, so I, 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 he, is, he plays fast and loose with the timeline. Uh, so there are some things that will, he will say happened before they actually did. So don't think he's giving you the God's honest truth, but it is a fun, fun read and one worth looking at. Great. So Thank playing you. God in Yellowstone is a whole lot of fun. Thank oh, you. And he, he, yeah. oh, he also wrote uh, a book before that. What got me into that was um, Into a Dark Wood, Alston Chase. And okay. that is kind of from 1960 on of how the environmental movement and we got to where we are. Really cool. Thank you. Yeah, I'll it is extremely cool. And I'll see if I can find Brom, uh, uh, Brom Taylor's book, um, the encyclopedia of whatever it was, uh, environmental um, environmental groups, something okay. to that effect. Great. And whatever else you would like, you have my email. <laughs> Thank you, Norm. No, this has been really, really cool. Really enjoy talking to you. I enjoy um, talking about this. I'm sorry it's being recorded. <laughs> no, no, no. On the okay. contrary. This is great. If you like this episode, please rate, subscribe, and tell your friends.
My stuff is like this. They're gonna subscribe. <laughs>